0: Hi guys, it's good to be back with you. I think it's been about, I don't even know how long. Time is weird since the pandemic, Yeah. So it could have been three years ago or it could have been a year ago, I don't really know. But either way, it's good to be back. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and read. You guys have these nifty little journal Bibles I saw and I had a different version, so I grabbed one of these um, and I'm gonna read along with you. So we're gonna go Mark 3, 7 through like 182. No, I'm just kidding. We've got a, a few few verses here. It'll be fun to read through. All right, Mark 3, 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee to Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. and called, to, "...and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and might send them, send them out to preach." This is a different version than what I was reading through, but that's okay. We're going to keep going. "...and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James." to whom he gave the name, um, let me see if I can pronounce this right, Boanerges, I looked it up, that is, sons of thunder, and Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard of it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of the demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless first he binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sin will be forgiven, the children of man. And whatever blasphemes they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit has, never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came to him standing outside. They sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother? and my brothers. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. And at our church, we say, and at your church, you say that too, apparently. Okay, good. Um, I'm going to pray for us so we'll go. Father, I thank you for the privilege of being here and just being reminded of the beauty of your church universal that Ben has preached at our church a number of times. I get to be here again with this community, and we're all praying to the same God. We are all on the same team. There is a mutual binding of Christ's blood that brings us all together, and it's a gift. And so we thank you that we can do this. Um, Be with my words as I preach as I speak um, hopefully your truth, and I pray that our hearts would be soft, our hearts would be encouraged, um, and where they need to be rebuked, they would be rebuked, Lord. So um, come through your spirit and minister to all of our hearts right now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, well, um, I think it's a it's an absolute masterpiece. Um, I think it's cultured art. Movie Talladega Nights, you guys familiar. Can I get an amen on that one? Um, As I was reading through this passage, I was reminded of this scene you probably are aware of, where Ricky Bobby is sitting around the table with his family and his friend, and they begin to pray. He begins to pray for the food, say grace, and he starts praying to this eight-pound, six-ounce newborn infant baby Jesus, and he gets interrupted, and they remind him that Jesus has grown. He has a beard and all this stuff, and he said, I like to think of my Jesus as the baby Jesus, and I'm saying grace so I can say and pray to whichever Jesus I prefer. And then his friend jumps in and says, I like to think of Jesus wearing like a tuxedo t-shirt because it says I want to be formal, but I'm also here to party, and I like to party, and so that's how I like my Jesus to be. And they go through these different visions they have of who Jesus is, these different perspectives of who Jesus is. I think his kid wanted him to be like a, a ninja fighting an evil samurai or something like that, But the point being that we all have these different perspectives and different beliefs of who Jesus is, and that's what we see in this passage right here. We all have a perspective, and the question is, what is the accurate perspective of who this person Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? And we're going to look at this in this passage to get a better understanding of what the Bible says, at least in Mark 3 of who Jesus is? I think it's a really important question to ask. Like, maybe the most important question in the world to ask. Who is Jesus? My dad, uh, this is not in my notes, but my dad would always ask this clarifying question when my dad's not a, a big intellectual, he's kind of a blue collar guy, and he just always carried in, the, in his back pocket just this question. Whenever somebody started to get really philosophical about God and is there a God, and he would go and he'd just say, what do you do with Jesus? Because Jesus was like this historical figure that was a big deal, and you need to decide with all your big-brained ideas who was Jesus and who is Jesus. History is divided by the birth of Christ. Like all of history, we divide it by the birth of Christ. There was a famous study done a while back, like in 2013, by this independent newspaper, and they used all kinds of like algorithms and um, a ton of investment of time and just energy went into this. And the question that they were seeking is, who was the most famous person of all time? Who was it? Napoleon came in second, which was kind of strange to me. Muhammad third. And I'm going to give you guys an opportunity to give me the Sunday school answer. Who was number one? Jesus. Jesus. And what was really interesting about that study was they were also taking into account who has the most influence after 200 years of their death. So Jesus' fame just keeps going. Many studies, most studies would say, as we're trying to figure out faiths around the world, what percentage would call themselves Christians or say, I follow Christ Jesus? 33% seems to be kind of the... The average uh, number, consensus on how many people, that's like a third of the world, claim to follow Jesus. So I don't think it's a waste of time to try to better understand, as we look at this passage, who is Jesus and what does Scripture in this text tell us? So we'll kind of recap in this story in a really modern way if you just look at it, because we, we read the Bible, we get familiar with these passages of Scripture, and we don't even sometimes hear them. So this is kind of a bizarre thing that's happening here, right? You have uh, this guy who quickly, very quickly, overnight, becomes kind of a celebrity. A celebrity to the point where people are crowding in from, from 100 plus miles away. And when you walk that, that's quite the distance. People from different tribes, people from different backgrounds and cultures and skin colors, and they're all clamoring around this man, this celebrity, wanting to be touched, wanting to be healed, wanting to be seen, wanting to hear hope. And he's performing these acts that you could put in a category of David Blaine-style magic tricks, right? Like people who have leprosy are being touched and healed and withered hands and and they're touching him and all of a sudden healed. And all these people are around watching this take place. And they're like, my kid's sick. He's going to be next. So it's a, it's a really big deal. He, he then goes and he builds this entourage around him after that. you guys remember um, when Taylor Swift had the bad blood BFFs? Like she built all these people around her and that's everywhere they went. That's how they rolled. I only know that because my wife listens to Taylor Swift. Um, But he gives them all their nicknames. I think she did the same thing. They all have nicknames, right? Like he renames them. Like they're part of my posse and I'm going to rename you. And then this guy would roll around with his squad. And he seemed like a spiritual dude, but he would purposefully go around and offend all these churches and these religious institutions. Like he would do it in a very public way. He would take the lead pastor of the church, a cardinal or whoever, whatever denomination you want to think about, and he would say these very offensive things to them, and they had a hard time arguing with him about it. He didn't look like a bodybuilder, but in this passage, we read that he talks about how he's the strongest guy in the room, like there's demons that are possessing people, And he's actually able to bind the strong man in the room. So he's kind of claiming to be maybe one of the toughest guys around. His family then tries to get him helped um, because it's kind of embarrassing what he's doing. He's causing all of this hype. He's saying these really outlandish things. The church is getting mad at him. Everybody's getting mad at him. And not only do they want to get him help, but they actually want to have him arrested Because they want to shut whatever's going down so their name is not attached to what's going on here. But I think in all of that, there's actually a lot more to this story. And we're going to look at just these different perspectives that people have in this story of who Jesus is. So the first one I want to talk about is, the first perspective is Jesus is controllable. We see in verses 7 and 10, we have people coming from miles and miles away. They want to be healed. They're pressing in to be healed. And we also see multiple times in this passage, Jesus is trying to get away from them. We see Jesus trying to uh, slip out so he doesn't get crushed because there's so much of a force of people wanting whatever it is Jesus has. But here's the problem. They're like, hi, Jesus, we love you, and we have a wonderful plan for your life. And the plan is that you give us what we ask you to give us. Now, is asking for healing wrong? No. It's this beautiful thing that Jesus did, and I believe continues to do. But the issue is these were the same people that cried crucify him at one point. These are the same people of the same crowd that wanted him dead, that joined in the screaming to end his life. And so what we see is they want a Jesus that they can get stuff from, but not have to bow a knee to and worship as king. This is what we would maybe call in our culture kind of a comfortable Christianity. I want the benefits Of Jesus as my Savior, I want to say, yeah, I I trust in God when it's convenient, but when it actually comes down to obeying Him and following Him as a King, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not down. I noticed this with my kids. I've had, I have a lot of kids, and they're all at various ages, but they all seem to kind of go through this stage where, when we talk about prayer, it's like, yeah, I tried it, it doesn't work, and it's like, okay well, what are you asking for? Well, I'm asking for four pounds of chocolate right now, and God's not delivering it to me, so I think I'm out on prayer. I don't think I'm going to pray to God anymore, and it's like, well, you're kind of using God as sort of like this Santa Claus to give you what you want, but life in Christ means you actually bow to him, and you ask him what he wants of you, and then in doing so, he will take care of you. I, I like what uh, Dallas Willard called it. He called them vampire Christians. He says, one, in effect, says to Jesus, I'd like a little of your blood, please, but I don't care to be your student or have your character. In fact, won't you just excuse me while I get on with my life and I'll see you in heaven? Jesus is kind of like fire insurance, right? He's controllable. He's something we can, we can manage. And, and, and maybe one of the litmus tests in, in your life is, is Jesus someone I think I can control? Uh, How do I know if that's true? I feel angry at him right now. I I did the things I was supposed to do, and and maybe he's not coming through for me. And I do think that there's space, and, and there should be a place where we can be honest about our feelings and what we're going through, but I think at the end of the day, that anger points to this reality that you want something from Jesus he's not willing to give you And you think you deserve it, and therefore it justifies anger. So we see that from the first group of people. The second perspective of Jesus that we see is that Jesus is crazy. Jesus' own family members, in verse 21, it says that they were trying to arrest or restrain him because they thought he was out of his mind. And then it goes on to say in verse 31 that his mother and his brothers came standing outside of the house trying to reel him back in because they were embarrassed of him and for him. The people closest to Jesus by blood were the most embarrassed of him. Does anybody in here have any family drama? Do you ever felt rejected by a family member? Probably not. It's probably just me. Um, Jesus has experienced that. Jesus was deemed crazy by those who should have been his biggest supporters. Jesus was making claims that he was divine. So a little credit to them. It would be weird to have a brother or to have a son start saying that he is God. And that's what Jesus was doing. He referred to himself um, in the chapter before as the Lord of the Sabbath. And we maybe don't understand this as clearly as they did in this day, but the Lord of the Sabbath was, first thing that's going to come to your mind is creator. God created the Sabbath, and this man is just saying out loud that he's the Lord of that Sabbath, and he's my son, or he's my brother. And that's crazy. That's weird. Jesus made really big, bold claims. Some believed him, and some didn't. But here we see those closest to him were ashamed, the other thing that we see Jesus do is, and, and why they put him in the on the crazy bus, is he was telling people that he forgives them of their sins up until this point. Only God can forgive sins. But Jesus is boldly saying this. The weakness of Jesus' message about forgiveness is crazy. The upside-down kingdom that we talk about, about being poor actually means you're you're rich, about praying for your enemies and, and loving them. Those are all super crazy things, crazy statements. And it's either God that's saying that and redefining and fulfilling the law, or this guy is crazy. I, I had an um, old college friend call me a couple days ago. No, she uh, had posted something. She actually... DM'd my wife and I. I don't know if you can do that or not, but somehow we both got a message. Um, So she did it in an appropriate way, old college friend. Hadn't talked to her in probably 15 years. And she said, I "I, I had a dream the other night, and I feel like I would be disobedient if I didn't tell you about this dream because I believe God has a prophetic word for me to share with you. And she goes, and I feel really stupid saying this um, because I don't do this a whole lot. But I'm at a point where I just feel like I would be disobedient. And so um, she ended up sending this voice memo of this whole long thing. And it was one of the most, like, penetrating, um, relevant things to my life that I've heard in a long time. I I literally, like, pulled my car over when I was listening to it and listened to it again and, and felt a ton of emotion in that moment. There's no way she could have known the things that were going on. But what's cool is she was obedient to do that. And what would have been easy is to say, Jesus is crazy. This is crazy, and I'm not going to do it. But her life was surrendered to Christ, and she saw it as disobedience to not do it, and it ended up being a tremendous gift for me. Jesus calls us to do crazy things. He's either God in doing that, or he is just a crazy person. If he's God and he calls us to do crazy things, then that's just the way the kingdom of God works. But if he's not, then we we should walk away from it, and we should try to have him arrested. The third perspective we see, and this is from the church leaders, is that Jesus is evil. Jesus is bad. Jesus was exhibiting some real power as evil spirits were coming out of people. The scribes, it says in verse 22, who had come down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul and he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. So Jesus is doing these things that are extremely powerful and he's speaking to demons and they're speaking back to him and they're. What they've, what they've come to a conclusion of is that he is evil. I think this idea of Jesus is controllable is less logical than the last two that I just shared. I think Jesus being evil and Jesus being crazy is kind of the place that Jesus takes us to. Jesus claiming to be God, think about this, Jesus claiming to be God And all of these followers over history have followed him, and many of them have suffered brutal, brutal, martyred ends to their lives. I think it was in 2018 or 2017, it was estimated to about 90,000 people were martyred for Christ. So Jesus says, follow me. Jesus says, take up your cross and, and do all of these things. And if he is not God, I would say he's responsible for more deaths than anyone I could ever imagine. He has led people into suffering, persecution, and a miserable life. And so this big idea of seeing Jesus as like a good moral teacher, I mean, I have a C.S. Lewis quote you've probably heard. I'm going to read it anyways just because it's so great. Um, But not seeing him as either God or not having the perspective of him as evil, or not having the perspective of him as uh, crazy, you're probably not seeing or hearing the words of Jesus. So, so here's, here's the quote by C.S. Lewis. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And for whatever reason, that is still probably one of the most popular descriptions I hear about Jesus for people that don't know Jesus or don't follow Jesus as Lord. He was a good guy, He was a good teacher, but he doesn't give us that space to do that. So final conclusion, the fourth point, Jesus is God. I think that there's more to the story of what Jesus is doing. You know, Jesus, behind every miracle, there was a purpose. Jesus didn't suspend the natural just for the sake of you going, whoa, that is so cool. He always had some deep purpose behind it to reveal something to us. So let's look at the healing for a minute that he did, that we read about. If Jesus is God, could it be that he is healing us to show us something deeper than the actual healing in itself? What Jesus was doing, historically speaking here, was a very foreign thing to even that culture. Um, The idea that they would put their hands on him and he was considered a religious leader, they would put their hands on him and he would let them do that was a pretty wild thing in itself because the religious leaders of the time had very strict standards to not allow dirty, unclean, sick people touch them or else they would have to go through this very rigorous cleansing process. They were afraid that people touching them would get the filth on them and into them. But what Jesus shows us in his healing was that he is stronger than what is unclean. He is more pure than what is unclean. And so instead of their dirt and their sicknesses and ailments getting onto him, they were purified by what came out of him. They were healed. He is showing us in the healing that he has power over every form of sickness, over every form of death. And spiritually, he was clean and didn't become dirty by being around the dirty people. Jesus cast out demons. Was he doing that as another magic trick? The demons were the only ones, actually, in the story besides his disciples, and I don't even know if his disciples did it this time, who recognized and had the accurate perspective of who Jesus was. They they were the only ones saying, you're the son of God. Everybody else is saying, you're crazy. You know, you're, you're an evil person. And they were saying, you are the son of God in verse 11. They would fall down and they would kneel appropriately before him. What does that tell us? Why did Jesus allow this to be a public display? It's because the darkness in life, the unholy trinity that we feel of um, uh, of of sin, the world, uh, sorry, the flesh, the devil, and the world, all these different demonic things that come with the brokenness of the world, the fallenness of the world, Jesus has complete dominion over. They bow a knee to him. So when we were sharing the Ebenezer things, um, which I thought was great, um, I was... I was struck by, and and this is the same at our our community and our church as well, Um, everybody is trying to get through right now. Doesn't it seem that way? Uh, we're, We're trying to get through. Like, life is really weighty and heavy for many of us, the majority of us, I would say. I think mental illness we're dealing with. I think we're dealing with spiritual attack. I think we're dealing with conflict. I think there's internal turmoil in a lot of us that's hard to even identify and place. Jesus is showing us that all of that evil bows a knee to him. He's victorious over all of that, not just in this historical story, but in your story as well, if he is God. And then we see Jesus with his family. When Jesus' family wants him arrested, He says, that's not my family. You guys are my family. What is he doing in this moment? Jesus is redefining the closest natural community we can come up with and saying, I've got something even deeper for you. So with the dysfunctional family that I have and you guys don't have, remember, I find a lot of hope in that because I know That while I still love my family, nothing feels to me as close as my spiritual family. That's a gift that only God can create and define. And it also tells us that when those who are closest to you, in the natural, those who are the very closest to you, a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, when they betray you, you are not alone. You're not alone. You've got a family that's even closer than that when your family rejects you, mistreats you, or acts a little crazy sometimes. And Jesus is saying, I know what that feels like. You're not alone. I'm God, and I've actually experienced that myself. And then we see Jesus make the ultimate claim here. We see Jesus give them the softball pitch, telling them that he is God. He says in verse 28, Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. Let's stop for just a minute on that one. In Greek, that word all means all. So that's encouraging. Like all sin that you have ever committed, all dark thoughts, all ill motives, all self-righteousness, all of those things, there is no level at which it cannot be forgiven. It is all forgivable. And whatever blasphemies you've uttered and spoken, forgiven. It's all in the qualifying circle of being forgiven. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, this is what my version says, has never, uh, never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And this has been a verse, I don't know if you guys remember, there was like a TikTok thing going around where students were like, kids were like, I'm blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I deny God or whatever. It was like trying to one up each other with like these dares and stuff. That's not what this means. Basically what he's saying is the only sin that I will not forgive is the sin that you have not repented of. It's a, it's a life that says, I don't need the grace of Jesus. That's the one that doesn't get forgiven. That's the blasphemy against the spirit is to say, I am doing this on my own. And so Jesus speaks these words and he's prophesying a mini prophecy of what he's about to do. Jesus is about to show us uh, that he is God a couple years from this moment. He, he allowed himself to be controlled, Jesus actually did allow himself to be controllable at one point by the Roman soldiers and by the religious zealots that, that captured him and had him killed. And Jesus' idea did look like he was crazy, Jesus, when he chose to be weak and to die in order to be victorious over sin and evil and death he overcame death through death, and Jesus died actually as evil Jesus Jesus became evil, Jesus became sin, Jesus became our evil, Jesus became our sin, a criminal by dying a death that we deserved. so if you ask yourself, is Jesus controllable? Is Jesus crazy and is Jesus evil like the different perspectives we see? The answer is yes and no. There was a moment in which he became all of those things to redeem us and to save us and to ultimately prove that he is who he said he is. He is God. So where do we go from here? Well, there's one more part of this passage that is, I think, super encouraging. And that's this moment when he gathers all of his apostles and disciples and he starts naming them and he begins to tell them. He says he summoned them, in my version, in verse 13, the ones that he wanted. Um, Why is this encouraging? Well, the first thing that Jesus does as they get together is he begins to give them names. And that's a really big deal that we kind of miss in our culture because in a patriarchal society, the Father giving them names, nobody could name you unless they were in charge of you. And so Jesus is showing them he is God by giving them names. And when Jesus speaks a name over someone or any word, it's going to happen. You guys remember like Genesis 1 and 2? How was the world created? How did we come into being? It's through the word. It was through Jesus. Jesus never has a word fall to the ground that doesn't take place and obey what that word says to do. Jesus is the word. And so Jesus begins to rename them. He begins to show them that he is the authority in their life, and that what he says and calls them will come to pass. Um, My oldest son is adopted from Uganda, and we, uh, so our last name, he was adopted at eight years old, um, and our last name is Marvin, our family's, and his first name at the time was Martin. So I was kind of like, how do I, and he spoke very broken English, so I was trying to explain to him your name's going to be Martin Marvin. Are you good with that? And he said, no. No. He could barely speak English. He said, the Marvin goes away. And I said, no. The Marvin has to stay. But we can come up with another name, or we can call you something different if you want, or we can keep Martin. And so we went through all of these things, and I was reading Bible stories that he wanted to be called Jonah. So his name is Jonah. But I, when I told him, that you are a Marvin, at first he was upset, but then I began to explain what that meant. It means you're in my family. It means you and I are now father and son. It means that I get the privilege of calling you legally in a document and all these things, your last name Marvin, because you're a part of me. It was a very significant moment that I never got to never got to have a conversation with my other kids. They're, my other ones are all biological about, like, hey, what's your name going to be? That was kind of a weird moment, but it was really, really special. And in this moment, that's what came to my mind, was what an honor to be able to be named and to hear the name that God gives you. And so why is this significant for us? It's because Jesus gives us a lot of names. Jesus calls us forgiven. Jesus calls us spotless. Jesus calls us friend. Jesus calls us co-heirs with him. Jesus says these words, he names you these things, and it will come to pass, just like it did in Genesis 1 and 2. The other thing that Jesus did when he summoned them, that means that he called them And so we see Jesus going toward the apostles, disciples, and he has chosen them before they had a chance to choose him. If you call Jesus your Lord, if he is your Savior, he has chosen you. And that's incredibly comforting because that means it wasn't a mistake. Those affections that you have in your heart for him the desire for forgiveness, the desire to do what's right, was not a mistake. It was predetermined by the divine God who has never made a mistake before. And then he empowered them. Verse 14, he appointed 12, whom he also named the apostles, to be with him, to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. You have been, as a follower of Jesus, as a disciple of Jesus, you have been empowered, just like the disciples were. The living God dwells inside of you and gives you victory over strongholds that are unnatural to what you had before, gives you affections and desires that want to connect and obey Christ that you never had before. You are empowered to not succumb to demonic oppression. You are empowered to forgive and love others. You are empowered to love God. There is something inside of you that God has given you, namely his spirit, that you did not have before, that we are just so encouraged to see in this. everyone has a perspective of Jesus. What is the accurate one? I'm just going to close with this story. It might be really silly. I don't know. But as I was leaving to come over here, my son and his little best buddy neighbor, um, they're both eight years old, runs up to me and says, they were on, their, on an iPad. And they said, Dad, listen, watch this video. And uh, it's kind of crazy. It's kind of weird. But I was, it's a picture. They said, it's a picture of what kind of looks like the outline of Jesus, and they said, if you stare at these dots, has anybody seen this before, is this just a, okay, you stare at these dots on his head, and I was like, great, this is some demonic thing that I'm looking at, they're like, just stare at it, the guy's like, just stare at it on the YouTube video, so I just stared at it, and I stared at it, it went really long, and then they said, okay, now look at the wall, and blink a bunch of times, and when I was blinking, I could see the face of Jesus. Now, it was white Jesus, granite, but it was a white Jesus. And I just, they were like, do you see? I was like, that's crazy. And I just had this thought that it's so easy to lose sight of who Jesus is as God. It's so easy to forget that God dwells inside of us, isn't it? That this is, this is truth. This is what we stake our lives on. And why don't we obsessively stare at Jesus as God and fix our eyes on him so that in the moments when we're not fixing our eyes on him, he's still in our vision. We still see him. And I just want to encourage you guys with that very weird story that I think maybe the Lord allowed me to experience right before I came here. um, To fix your eyes on Jesus, as simple as that is. Fix your eyes on who Jesus said he is. Fix your eyes on the promises of Christ, because this world is doing everything, and there is an enemy out there that is doing everything he can to make you forget. Fix your eyes on Jesus, and you won't be able to explain why all the time, but you will see him. So we're going to take communion. And this is another way in which we fix our eyes on Christ. And not just our eyes, it involves all of our senses, which I love. We are actually consuming Christ as a reminder that Christ is in us. That that we are digesting Jesus. Like, that's a weird thought, isn't it? But like, He is a part of our lives, and we are a part of His life. We are one with Him in communion in this moment. And so, um, you guys have your... I was, there's the little guys back there. If you want to take one of these COVID, post-COVID stash here, um, you can take that or they're at the table and I'm not very good at opening these because I just went right to the juice and not the cracker, um, but here we go. Got it. Saved. Okay. So this, this wafer is a representation of the body of Christ that was broken for you. Let's take it. And this juice or wine at the table is um, mysteriously not a grace and a reminder of the blood that Jesus spilled for you when He had His, He had your name and your face in mind on the cross. Let's take this together, Lord. We thank you that we celebrate. Not historical words, but words about who you are that hit us at a very 2022, October 23rd, at like 5.05 p.m. moment right now. That when we talk about Jesus, oftentimes we say he was this, he was that, but Jesus is God. He is alive. And he is working and moving in our lives. And Lord, so would you remind us to stare and be a little obsessive over who Christ is, over the promises that he delivers for us, over the comfort that he offers to us at any moment. Help us to be reminded that joy is accessible, not necessarily happiness, but there is a deep settling joy that is accessible to us every waking and sleeping moment of our lives. That's the promise. So Lord, help us to find comfort in that today. Help us to remember your son Jesus and help us to carry that into the week that we're walking into. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray.